This is episode 510 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As we begin to experience his word and embrace this higher Christian life, we find that trusting Scripture opens the floodgates to more intimacy with him. And in our last time together, we looked at a familiar truth, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, to see if we could trust what it says. And here's how it reads. Do not love the world or the things in the world, which leads to the natural why. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, why? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does, not just knows, but does the will of God, abides forever. It seems this truth comes with a command, followed by a warning, and ends with a great promise. The command is to not love the world or the things in the world. The warning then states that those who do not follow this command will find the love of the Father is not in him or them, which is kind of frightening. But it ends on a high note. The promise says, those who do the will of God abides forever. Do the will of God. But what is the will of God? Is it the same for everyone? Or does God have a specific will for each one of us? And are they mutually exclusive or somehow tied together? So how do I determine the will of God for everyone? Do I have to know his general will for everyone before he reveals his specific individual will to me? And if so, where is that will found in scripture? A lot of questions and a lot of answers. So join us today as we explore the first four of the five wills of God for everyone as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We have been talking, as you know, about uh, taking a look at the early church, not so much the events that they went through in the book of Acts to help us prepare for maybe some of the same kind of things that are going to be happening in the, uh, to us as a church corporately and probably individually today. And last week, we uh, tried to determine pretty much some questions about them not about what they did or the message that they preached, because their message is somewhat the message that we preach. We just have a tendency of preaching it with less unction. They, uh, they lived in a communal setting. They really jettisoned the things of this world because it really didn't matter compared to what the Lord had in store for them. They really viewed each other as members of their family rather than as independent contractors who come together like in a professional sports team, but all have their agents, and they're only going to stay as long as it works for them, and then they're going to trade and move up and try to make more money elsewhere. And so what we really tried to strive was, how did they think? What was, what was in their mind? What made them who they were? And uh, I asked the question last week, because when we look at the book of Acts, how this group of uneducated, untrained men who weren't as smart as we are, they didn't have college degrees and they didn't go to high school till they was 18. You know, they didn't have Bibles like we have. They certainly didn't have all the technology we have, the Christian television, Christian movies, Christian music, Christian 
worldview. They didn't have any of that. They were in a hostile environment, not only for the Jews, but also oppressed by the Romans. They were living in a really desolate area. Israel then does not look like Israel now. They, um, you know, they, with what little they had, they literally, as they said about Paul, they turned the world upside down. So what did they know that we don't know? What knowledge did they have that we don't have? And as I shared with you last week, the answer is nothing. They knew nothing more than we know now. As a matter of fact, we probably know, Edo and our brain, know far more than they ever did. But the issue was what did they do with what they knew? What did they believe that we don't believe today? And the answer is a lot. You know, we have a tendency of, since we're products of the Enlightenment, we have a tendency of holding everything into our mind, having a general idea about a Bible study is where I gain facts, where I understand God's word better, where I uh, looked at some nuances about the history of Isaiah, and so therefore I can communicate it in a way that wows my Sunday school class. Back then, when they knew things, they knew things Gnosko. They knew things by experience. They experienced God's word. They experienced his peace. They, they were changed by his word. And so what we did last week is we took one statement from 1 John chapter 2, a simple statement that they knew they lived by and that we know because it's in our word right now. And we tried to determine how they lived by this statement versus how we live by this statement. And I spent an inordinate amount of time breaking down this passage, showing us exactly what these words mean and how they relate to our lives. Do not love the world. If you remember from last week, world cosmos, not the globe, not the physical world. Do not love the world system. Do not love what the world loves. Do not love um, its mindset, what its reputation. Do not seek praise and adoration and have your heart surrendered to the world. Money, toys, houses, trinkets, all that kind of stuff. Nor the things in the world. And that things in the world are good and bad things. The things in the world could be something you know, like money or possessions, or it could be children. It could be relationships. It could be reputation. Anything in the world. Don't love any of those. Why? If, then passage. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. There's no gray area. There never is a gray area with God. Never. We live in the gray area. We strive for compromise in the gray area. There's never. A tree will produce good fruit or bad fruit. Well, how about just fruit that's kind of okay? It's edible, but nobody really likes it. No. Good fruit or bad fruit. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you say you have fellowship with the light, yet walk in darkness, you lie. Oh, gosh. Isn't there a compromise? Sure. Um, you're either hot or cold. But since you're not hot or cold but lukewarm, it makes Christ nauseous to the point he wants to vomit us out of his mouth. That's offensive to us because we want to live in the gray areas. There are none with God. You are either alive or dead. Alive in Christ or dead in your sin. How about if I'm on life support? That I'm kind of a little bit alive, but I'm no, it doesn't work that way. 
You're the child of God or a child, as Jesus said, of your father, the devil. This passage is exactly the same way. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. You can't love other people like God loves you. You're incapable of self-surrender. You're incapable of sacrificial giving because you love you so much for all that is in the world. And he names the negative stuff. And again, I shared with you last week, these are the exact things Satan tempt Eve with. The love of the flesh. Here's a nice looking piece of fruit, even though God told me not to take it. The lust of the eyes. Oh, wow, look how pretty it is. The pride of life. If I eat this, I become just like God. It's not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, and here's how we ended, the blessing. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Mino, forever in the Greek, abides, lives, dwells, makes his home, has fellowship with, is united in heart, mind, soul, and spirit with God. He who does the will of God versus loves all the things of the world. I want to be like the world. I want to make a lot of money. I want to be famous. I want to be a YouTuber, which is something my generation knew nothing about. I want to have a big house and I want to, you know, make tons of money and do all the things that I want to do because it's all about me. And there's a sacrifice cost for that. He who loves the world and the things in the world will not have the love of the Father in him, but he who does not just thinks, not just believes, but actually acts on that, the will of God abides forever. So as I was getting ready to share with you this week, the other verse that we talked about last week, which deals about being a friend of the world, making yourself an enemy with God, I got stymied by this phrase, will of God, because it dawned on me, what is the will of God? He who does the will of God abides forever. It raised a couple questions. You know, so what is the will of God? Is there an overall will for everybody? Or am I only seeking God's will for me? Being the narcissistic kind of society we are, when we think about the will of God, what's the will of God for your life? Instead of thinking about the global will, we always go, the will of God for my life is, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go to school? What kind of job am I going to have? Where am I going to live? It's all about me, the decisions that I need to make, a very specific will. And there is a specific will for you, but it always falls underneath the umbrella of God's will for everyone. And if you cannot figure out God's will for everyone, you will never understand God's will for you. Because first and foremost, God's will for you is his same will for everyone. And then there may be little specific nuances about how he wants you specifically to fulfill his will for everyone. Make sense? So what are those? What is the will of God. Before we look at that, there's a couple foundational truths that we need to realize override everything. And here they are. Jesus called them the greatest commandment. You know, they, he was asked what the greatest commandment is, and he basically said there are two. 
There's a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. First four commandments of the Ten Commandments are the vertical relationship. You'll love the Lord your God, that you will uh, not blaspheme him or take his name in vain. You'll honor his day. And then there's the horizontal relationships. You shall not murder, steal, covet, all that kind of stuff. And, and Jesus summed them all up. First greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord, agapeo, the Lord, with all your heart with every ounce of passion you have in your life. He shall be absolutely number one. And with all your soul, which is the seat of your mind, your will, your volition, your emotions, your passion, everything that you do should be funneled under the love of God. And with all your mind, everything you think, everything you ponder, every bit of wisdom that you can appropriate to yourself should all be focused on the love of God. Not the love of you, not the love of stuff, not the love of this world, not the love of our future, not the love of anything else that we hold on to, but the love of God. This is the first and great commandment. And once we love God that much, then the love of God will be in us. And it allows us then to flow that love out to others, especially those people that are really hard to love, even hard to like. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. This is an amazing word. Not your brother, but your neighbor as yourself. Your brother, especially if it's a brother in Christ, has, you know, assuming they're a believer, they have the same worldview as you have. The things, things that God doesn't like, they don't like. The, God, the things that God likes, they like. But your neighbor is different. Your neighbor could be totally anti everything you are. Nevertheless, that's what it says. You shall love your neighbor as the one thing you love more than anything, which is not your kids, not your house. It's you. It's you how it affects you, how you're impacted by this world. Once we understand those two fundamental claims, then we could look at what theologians have called the five wills of God. And we find these in Scripture, and uh, they all kind of chain one on top of another to help us find a way to please the Lord in everything that we do. It's known as the five-fold will of God, and it only applies to believers. These are only for you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. First one, number one most important will of God is you be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We find it in Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be unwise, whatever that word means, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have spent weeks talking about how that happens. We've spent months talking about who the Holy Spirit is and that you're to have a relationship with him probably more intimate than you even have with Jesus. Because God the Father is in heaven Jesus, who has a body of his own, is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but it is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. 
It is the Holy Spirit who empowers you. When anything is done here on earth, it is done in the name of Jesus, but through the agency of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we should have an intimate relationship with him, even though he's kind of hard to get our mind around, because, and if we're filled with him, that becomes very easy. Well, what does this passage mean? What does this first will of God mean? Therefore, do not be unwise. Paul is saying, don't be foolish. Don't be devoid of understanding or don't, good sense. Just don't be stupid, okay? Everybody knows this. Don't be stupid, but you need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Key word here. We defined it last week. The word will doesn't mean a demand. God is not up there going, you're going to do what I say, or I'm giving you a pink slip, you're fired, you're out of here, bub. He's not saying that at all. It's not a demand. It's not a command. He's not forcing us into that. I read something this week about this word that really helped me in my understanding of it. He says, the will of God is like a highway. It's a highway. God doesn't care how you travel down that highway. He gives you the freedom to walk or to run or to ride a bike. You can go on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. You can dress any way you want. You can you know, travel as far as you want. It's just, just as long as you're heading down this general highway of his will. When you're going down that highway, you please him. You give him joy. You put a smile on his face. And of course, the collateral blessings Come. What he really doesn't want you to do is get off that highway. How you travel in your own free will is up to you, how you serve him with the Holy Spirit that's in him. But he brings him good pleasure and pleases him when we travel down that highway and do his will. God blesses us with individuality, which in different affections and affinities that each of us have to allow us to travel down that will of God the way he's created us, but nevertheless, we're all heading in the same directions in the general confines of his will. Make sense? He's not dictating. He's not a despot. He's not forcing you. It's when you do his will, you rest and abide and are united with him forever, and his will brings him pleasure, good pleasure, and creates joy in him and in you. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't try for some sort of esoteric physical experience to, to think that's the will of the God. Don't get drunk with wine, in which is debauchery. Literally, the word means wastefulness. It's, it's reckless and senseless living. But, always look at the contrast, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine to the point that you're overcome with wine and you don't even act like yourself and you have this false sense of happiness. Hey, bud. Instead, be filled, overflowed, supplied abundantly with the Spirit who gives you something far greater than wine. Make sense? Will number one. If this one isn't fulfilled, the other ones are impossible to do. You can't because you're fighting against your flesh with no power. 
You're fighting against this world system with no power. You're claiming not to love the world, but you've got no power to love God more than the world. And so you're stuck in this, I know the things I should do, but I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. You know, who can rescue me from this body of sin, says Paul? The Lord Jesus Christ and a yielding and a surrendering to him. First will of God. Number two, this is for all believers, and this can, let me see this. You will only get victory of this if you're filled with the Spirit, and that is to be sexually pure. Sexually pure for all believers. Paul and Jesus talked a lot about this. You know, Paul talked about there's two types of sin. There's a sin that a man does outside of his body and a sin that a man does in his body. Same thing with a woman. And there's a different kind of sin between a a sin of just stealing or lying or cheating or actually having a immoral sexual relationship outside the confines of marriage. Something our society is totally jettisoned. Most of you, as believers in Christ, living in the society we are, it ain't that big a deal anymore. To actually find a 24-year-old woman or man who has not had sex and is looking for a husband or a wife is almost unheard of today. But it's to be sexually pure. We find this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Uh, since it's more than one verse... We're going to break it down and look and see exactly what God says. He has certain requirements. When a Christian man has premarital sex with a Christian woman or vice versa, there's a fraud that takes place. I'm claiming to be a Christian and I have certain ideals. They're not my ideas. They're God's ideas of purity and chastity before marriage. But nevertheless, I want you and you want me. So we're going to jettison all that. I'm going to talk you into it or you're going to talk me into it. And there's a defrauding, a covenant breaking that takes place between the individual and God. And God is more concerned about his children doing this than he is the world. Look at what it says. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. In what way? How am I supposed to be sanctified? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Watch how, what's what this verse means. It is incredibly convicting. This is the will, same word. This is what brings God pleasure and a smile on his face. This is the will of God, your holiness. Your holiness. By the way, the name of the spirit who inhabits us is not the benevolent spirit, the merciful spirit, the grace spirit, the loving spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit. Your holiness, hagiosmos. We've looked at this word many times. It means holiness or I'm separating myself unto God. Therefore, if I've separated myself unto God, I'm not going to give myself in some sort of relationship, no matter what the culture says or what you manipulate me to do for temporal pleasure, I belong to God. And if I follow God's way, there's more joy in an intimate relationship with a person of the other uh, gender than there is, yes, I said it, other gender, only two, than than there is if I, um, you know, divulge into passions like for people who don't know God. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Uh, Lord, uh, how am I supposed to be holy? What is the one area that I struggle with holiness the most? It's your flesh and your flesh in relationships to other people, especially in our culture today, that you should abstain. The word means to refrain, cease and desist. No more done. I'm drawing a line. We're finished from sexual immorality. This word is pornea. And pornea is an amazing, all-encompassing, frightening word. We're going to look at it in just a second. So I restrain myself from sexual immorality, no matter how bad I want to be with her, or she with me, or that everybody else is telling us we need to do it, or I just feel so alone because all my other friends are having fun and I'm not. I'm to refrain, hold back, hold myself back from sexual immorality. Why? That each of us should know. This is a different word than the ones we normally look at, gnosko and edo. This word means to know instinctively or to know intuitively. I mean, you should just know this. As a believer, and nobody has to tell you this, you should know this. This makes sense. You should know it by your intuition. You should know it instinctively since your nature has been changed and you're more like Christ. You should know how to possess your own vessel, your own body in holiness, set apart to God and honor the state of being respected and revered, not only by God, but also by your peers and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know instinctively, it's not even in their, on their radar, it's not even in their mind, anything about God. They only serve themselves. So what does this word mean? You know, a man and woman are supposed to stay together until death. And the Lord says there's really only, um, um, there's really only two reasons why a Christian should be divorced. If a Christian is married to a non-Christian, he desires not to live with her anymore because of her faith, okay. Or pornea, or sexual immorality. Sexual, the word pornea is where we get the word porn and the word pornographic. It's a sexual sin. It's a violation of a covenant. And it is great, but it, 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 is, it is as bad as adultery but it is also encompasses the great arena of sins less than that. The man watches porn at night, um, even though he's sexually faithful, at least when it comes to other women, to his wife, has he committed pornea? Absolutely. If a uh, man lusts after other women, although he would never violate his marriage vow to his wife, he just thinks about it all the time or, or you know, stuff of that nature, has he committed pornea? Absolutely. The penalty for adultery in the days of Christ was death, in case you didn't know that. And so when, when Jesus said that a man and a woman can only be divorced if one of them has committed pornea, no, if they committed adultery, one of them would have died. But nevertheless, that's what the judicial law said at that time, although they didn't practice it during the day of Jesus much. But the fact is that it's a sin less than that. If I'm watching things on television and there are 
nude scenes or sex scenes, and I have, don't have anything to filter those out, and so I'm just watching them because everybody else does, and it's not that big a deal, and it really doesn't affect me, and my mind doesn't want, you know, really hold on to those things, as people claim. Have I committed pornea? Absolutely. Look it up yourself. It is a very harsh word. It is a frightening word in the culture in which we live. And here's what happens when a man and a woman in the church decide to violate their covenant vows they have made to the sanctity of marriage and purity and being, or being sanctified to the Lord. It says that no one should take advantage or defraud his brother in this manner. In what manner? In the manner we just talked about, in sexual sin, in, in pornea. Because the Lord is the avenger of such as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us the Holy Spirit, the agent of sanctification. No one should take advantage of a defraud to manipulate to one's advantage or exploit his brother. This is a fellow member of Christ family, of God's family. No one should do that. The judgment is worse for Christians than it is for non-Christians. In what? In the manner we just talked about. Because the Lord is the avenger. It is God who enforces justice, retribution, and retaliation for those sins that have taken place. As we also warned you and testified about that, because God did not call us authoritatively. God did not call us from uh, darkness into light. God did not summon us like a judge does to stand before him in court to uncleanliness, to immoral, or immorality is understood as especially filthy and dirty and impure. It means moral or sexual impurity. God did not call us to that. Our cultures called us to that. The church says we don't care anymore. It's a sin that doomed the Roman Empire. It's a sin that is dooming our nation today, and it is infecting the church. And God says, no, he did not call us into that, but to holiness, to be like him, to set yourself apart for holy purposes. Therefore, he who rejects, I'm going to deny that in attitude or actions. I don't care what anybody else says. This is what I'm going to do because everybody else does it. Anyone who rejects that does not reject man's rules or man's laws, but rejects God because he is the one that has given us the Holy Spirit. Can you live this kind of life without being filled with the Holy Spirit? Probably, but it will be very, very difficult. This is the will of God for everyone, all of us. And before we can ask God to give us the, what's the specific will for my life, God, regarding where I'm going to work or what I'm going to do or who am I going to marry or how many kids you want me to have, before he even gets to the specific, we have to get the general ones that he expects all of us to be proficient in down first. Here's number three. You will suffer. You will suffer if you, if you try to follow will number two. You will suffer if you try to live for Christ. You will 
end up like he ended up. He promised us completely that if they've done this to the master of the house, do you not think they will do it to the servants of the house? We find this passage in 1 Peter 4, 19. And here's how it begins. It says, therefore, let those who suffer, how? According to the will of God, what? Commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Therefore, therefore is a conclusion that's based on some previous teaching. When you study in scripture and you see the word therefore, which usually is the first word of a new section or a verse, it means that we're drawing a conclusion based on the text that happened prior to that. So in order to understand what suffering is all about regarding the will of God, let's look at the text that he draws this conclusion on. And it begins in verse number 12. He says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. The word here for fiery trial is the word agony. And it is, the word means the agony you would experience if you were being burned alive. If they doused your body with gasoline and lit it, the pain that you would be in is the fiery trial he's talking about here. None of us have probably experienced that at this point in time. The day may come. They did in Peter's day. So Peter's saying, man, don't, don't, don't be surprised. Don't think it's something that doesn't belong to you, this fiery trial that's consuming your flesh, that is to try you, to test you, to prove you as future tense, as though some strange thing happened to you past tense. But rejoice, present tense, in the midst of your fiery trial. How much do I rejoice? To the extent that you participate or partake in Christ's sufferings. What he's saying here is this, when you suffer, he suffered, and you should rejoice. When you suffer, it's nothing like he suffered, but nevertheless, you're feeling a little bit like he suffered, so you should rejoice to the extent that you're able to understand and to partake and the fellowship and the participation that you have in Christ's suffering. Why? This is a future view of God, that when his glory is revealed, when he is redeemed from his suffering, when all of that is put behind him, you may also be glad with exceeding joy, with extreme, excessive, ecstatic, literally leaping for joy. Ah, I don't feel that way about suffering. Why? Because it's all about us. We're concerned about our suffering, what we're going through. We're not realizing that there's a growth going on in there that we're able to somehow experience what Christ suffered for our sins, which makes us more desirable to live a holy life, not to put him through that again. And we can only do that when we surrender ourselves and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He continues, if our sins are because or when you are reproached, when someone defames your character, when someone says abusive words about you, when someone trashes your morality and your character for the name of Christ, don't curl up in a fetal position like it's the end of the world, but you're blessed. You're blessed. Why am I blessed? Because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest upon you. 
And then he starts talking about those people who are maligning you. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, take a stand for Christ and watch what happens. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Keyword is desire. Remember us talking about that? If you're not suffering persecution, it may be that our desire to be light in a world of darkness is not that great. On their part, God is blasphemed by their words. But on your part, he's glorified because you're living just like Christ. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, and a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, if you're suffering for your own sin, you don't rejoice in that. You rejoice when you're suffering for Christ's sakes. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't, don't be ashamed. The church may reject you. The church may want to distance himself from you. The church may be afraid that if you're suffering for your stand of Christ, if they hang with you, they'll suffer also, and they don't want to suffer. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes a verse from Proverbs. If the righteous one is scarcely saved or delivered, where will the ungodly and the sinners appear? This is the substance of the therefore. Therefore, based on all of that, that conclusion, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit, commit to deliver to entrust, to put yourself close to some, commit their souls, not their body, but their souls, their, their suke. It means the breath of life. It means our breath to blow. It's the immaterial part of man. It's the seed of our heart, mind, will, emotions, volition. It's everything who we are internally. Commit our feelings, commit our future, commit everything that's going on to him in doing good, still going to do good. And I know even he is doing good, Romans 8, 28, during my suffering, because he is my faithful creator, and he knows exactly what he's doing. He could stop this if he wanted, but since he has chosen not to, there must be a higher purpose that he knows about it, and I will rejoice, as the disciples did in the book of Acts, to be found worthy to suffer like my Lord. This doesn't fly well in a narcissistic Christian culture that preaches it's your best life now. This is not your best life now. This is a pretty bad life now. But now is not the true reality. The true reality is when we all get to heaven. Number four, in the midst even of your suffering, you're to give thanks always. These are classic five wills of God. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I love this section of Scripture. I get this picture of a mother um, in different days when it was, I guess, okay to send your kids to public school, but a mother with their first grader on the very first day of school standing at the bus stop as the bus comes by. 
and the bus is coming by, and she only realizes she has just a minute now before her son gets on the bus, and he's got his little lunchbox in his backpack, and, and as he's going towards there, the mother is trying to give him these final instructions, or maybe he's going to camp, you know, during the summer for three weeks. Hey, you know what? Be sure to be nice to everybody, and, uh, and eat all your vegetables, and be friends, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, giving these warnings. It's almost like in Paul's letter to Thessalonica, he ends it with these, these bullet points. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Okay. And everything give thanks. Now, wait a second. He said to rejoice always, but didn't feel the need to give them a reason. Okay, I'll rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Okay, I'll pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. And I can almost, almost imagine the kid looking back at his mom and going, what? That's impossible. How, how, do I, how do I in everything give thanks? Every one of these except this one does not have an explanation. But the Holy Spirit felt it necessary because it's so hard for us in everything give thanks, even in our suffering, that he tells us why we should do this. For it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, it's also that for rejoicing always and praying without ceasing, but specifically since we struggle with that so much, it's put in here. Do not quench the spirit. No reason why. Do not despise prophecies or prophetic utterances. Doesn't tell us why. Test all things, hold on to what is good, and abstain for every form or even the appearance of evil. I got that. But the command is in verse 18. In everything. This is that word pos. Remember? It's the same word translated all. It really says in all. Each, every, the whole the entire, in totality, without exception, in every single situation, in no matter what it is, in everything, offer thanks. Give thanks. Show one grateful. It doesn't say be thankful. It says give thanks. There's a more than just a mental, well, I'm kind of thankful for that. No, it's got to move to the point that it brings me to the point where I'm sharing and I'm blessing and I'm thanking the Lord for what he's done in my life. Now, why am I doing that? Because the situations in my life are just bliss? Because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Put your name in there. It's the will of God in Christ Jesus for Steve. I want to know what God's will is in my life. Well, here's one of them. This is the fourth one. And it's so hard to do if you're not filled with the Spirit. Yes, I'm going to give thanks for everything. Everything. Good, bad, indifferent to the other extreme. Horrific, horrible, excruciating. It doesn't matter. In everything, give thanks. Offer thanks to Him. Why? It's really simple. God is sovereign, is he not? You're going through a really tough time, a tough time about to lose your job. Maybe your family's turned against you. You've got some sort of mental, or not mental, medical, maybe mental, medical problem that you're going through and you prayed that God would take it away. You've got this emissary from Satan who's attacking you and you've asked God to remove that thorn in the flesh and his answer is no. His answer is no to every single prayer you've had to alleviate you from whatever pain that you're going through right now. And his answer is no. Could he alleviate your pain? With just a thought. But he has chosen not to. 
And because of his sovereignty, there's no reason to moan around and, oh, God, I can't believe this is happening to me. He could change it if he wanted to. You've asked him to change it, but his answer has been no, or at least not now, or you need to wait. There's a reason for that. And if there's a reason for that, God, I don't know what it is, but I know that your word says that all things, even the pain and suffering I'm going through right now, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to your purpose, which I am, and therefore I trust your character, I trust your nature. I'm even gonna give thanks for being thrown in prison in the middle of a jail cell after being flogged at midnight unjustly for doing nothing but preaching the gospel, and I'm gonna sing praise songs to the Lord full of joy. Do you remember the account in the book of Acts? It's not about us. It's about him. And this is one of the wills of God. We trust him by being thankful for no matter what happens. You know, last year I made uh, $100,000 in my business, and this year I made thirty. dollars I don't understand what's wrong. I just don't understand. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and I'm going to thank the Lord for that. Thank you for letting me earn thirty. Thank you. I could, it could be worse. I don't know why this is happening, but you know, you do, Lord. I, what are you trying to teach me? And what are you trying to show me? And maybe you need to free up. My, I need to free up more of my time to be out of your business and my. I don't know why. You know, if I don't take this coronavirus vaccine, I'm going to lose my job, or I'm going to, you know, be alienated from some of my family members, and I really don't want to do it. And so, God, I, you know, I'm not okay. Whatever happens, happens. You're supreme. You're godly. I don't have to hold on so tight. It's all about. You, I'm going to trust you. If we can't get down these five general wills for everybody, you'll never figure out God's specific will for you. Never. Especially if we're disobedient to the ones that just come with being a Christian. Last one. And here's the hardest one. And this is the one we're not going to address today. And you'll understand why in just a minute. That we are to submit to governmental authorities. Oh, I hate that one. Yes, so did they. They lived under Rome. We find that in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. And here's what it says. It says, therefore submit yourself to every, that's that word pos, that means all ordinances of man. Why? For the Lord's sake. You're not doing it for you, you're doing it for him. Whether to the king as supreme or to his governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, which by the way is the purpose of government if it's run rightly. And for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will, same word of God, that by doing good, you may put the silence, the ignorance of foolish men. By doing good. It's like a, a woman who's saved and she's living with a husband who's lost. And he's a blasphemer as far as God's word goes. And she, it says that you win him to Christ, if he does get one to Christ, by your quiet, meek demeanor. Not by constantly getting in his face and telling him he's going to hell. Works exactly the same way here with the government. To submit to government authorities. Okay, I have some questions. I have some questions. Um, so how does this command relate to the COVID mandate and the passports that we're supposed to be having. Let me tell you a story that Krista told me last night. One of her friends uh, that she knew in Missouri, really good couple, they've you know, fostered some kids and adopted some kids, and you know, is a good man. 
he uh, has spent four, uh, 20 years in the Air Force, correct? 20 years in the Air Force, the high position in the Air Force, and he retired. He got a job at uh, Lockheed Martin um, for four years, and they, of course, decided that they're going to institute this. You have to have the vaccine in order to work for Lockheed Martin. He then turned in a religious exemption. During the last four years, he's taken Bible classes because he thinks that God's calling him into the ministry anyway. So he went ahead and turned in his religious exemption, and he was granted a religious exemption from Lockheed Martin uh, to not to have the coronavirus under these circumstances. Whenever he walks into a room, he must announce that he's there. Unvaccinated, unvaccinated leper in your midst. No, seriously. He, um, he is not allowed to be within six feet of anybody during his entire work shift except one 15-minute period per day, every eight hours, he's able to go up to somebody and be less than six feet away, but it immediately, in the 16th minute, he has to withdraw and then declare himself to be a leper. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It, happened to you. it can happen to your business. It can happen to Walmart. It's we're moving in that direction with absolutely no indication that anybody is ever pulling back. By the way, this doesn't go into effect today. I think he has into December 6th or December 8th, when all of a sudden, you know, everybody who has got to have the vaccine has the vaccine. So today, tomorrow, next week, up until the whole month of November, up until December 6th or December 8th, he can interact with everybody kind of like he does now. But on that day, on that day, he now becomes a leper, unvaccinated in your midst. Doesn't that mean crazy? How, how does that discrimination, whatever you want to call it, and this command fit in to this COVID mandate and these COVID passports. By the way, if you have an iPhone, you will find on your iPhone, the new update that Apple has, has in there your COVID passport software. So as soon as they institute that, your iPhones already have it on there. This is not something that's just happening, happenstance. It has been planned. What is the difference between a just or unjust law? And how do we determine that, especially in light of this passage? Uh, does it even matter if a law is just or unjust? If the government says that I have to turn in Jews, do, do I have the right or ability as a Christian to say I'm not doing that, like Corey Tin Boone and some of the others did? Or is, is, do I just have to follow everything that it says? Uh, are there ever any exceptions to governmental authority. And does this apply to all cultures at all times? I mean, Christians in Nazi Germany and Christians today, are we st still have to follow blindly this passage? Or does God, like he does with divorce, one man, one woman, no exception, except this one, are there certain exceptions to following this final will of God? When Peter and John refused refused when the Sanhedrin says, we forbid you in Acts chapter four to teach or speak in the name of Jesus any longer. They said, hey, you determine whether it's right for us to listen to God or listen to you, but for us, we choose God and we're gonna keep telling everybody about our Lord and Savior. And when that happened, persecution broke out big time. Do you remember? Were they wrong when they did that? Should they have blindly, under no exclusion, said exactly what they said? Or is there another principle at play here? And if so, 
What is that principle? What governs our action? How are we to determine if obeying God means disobeying our authorities? And if, by the way, you do determine that obeying God means disobeying your civil authorities, they're going to want to crush you. They're going to want to destroy you, just like they've done in the history of Christianity. And why is that important? Because we are living in the most perilous times in the last several hundred years as a church and a nation today. Would you agree? I mean, every day that goes by, there's more insanity going on, and it seems like there is, there's no logic anymore. Well, look what's happened in Florida. In Florida, it's wide open, and DeSantis has opened up the whole state, and he's forbidden all these mandates, and the COVID rates in Florida have plummeted to almost nothing. And these other states over here that have all this masking and this, that, and the other, and the passports, their rates are up higher. There's some logic here. We're not listening to logic, because it's not about logic. It's about crushing opposition. And by the way, you are the opposition. You're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a higher authority in your life than, uh, than anything on earth. The question is whether or not we acquiesce over something as simple as a, um, you know, vaccine, a vaccine. I mean, come on. If you haven't done your homework, sure, give me a shot. If you have done your homework, you would run so fast that you would run out of breath in no time at all. Problem is, is we don't really care because, hey, my job requirement requires it, and so therefore, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Let me, I didn't want to do this today, but let me explain this to you really quick before I tell you why I'm not going to address this today. Where's Maddie? Maddie, can you come here for a second? Come here. Stand right here. See this girl? She has no idea what I'm talking about. She has no idea about vaccinations and non-vax. She has no idea about, about losing jobs or, or anything like that. But, you know, they just passed a rule that said, how old are you? Five. Five. Just passed a rule that says now she can get a, a shot. She now gets vaccinated. You know what I mean? Because somehow a, a year ago, there's no way anybody this age would ever get COVID. Now she has to get vaccinated. And if they can force this girl to take a vaccine in her body she doesn't want, they can also force her to only have two children assuming both are boys. And if they're not boys, like they do in China, then she has to abort the other one. I'll put her on birth control when she's, you know, 14 years old. They, have the, they will have the right to do anything they want with her body if we simply open the door with something as simple as a vaccine. You understand what's going on? Thank you, sweetheart. The freedoms that we're willing just to give up because we don't want them impacting our job or our life are the freedoms she will never have, never have. And someday when she's living in a very repressive society, if I'm still alive, I don't want her looking at me and saying, dad or papa, why didn't you fight harder? Why didn't you take a stand? You knew what was gonna happen and you didn't care because it was all about you. Much of the Christian church is acquiescing because we don't want to go through the pain and suffering and the sovereignty of God and all that kind of stuff. But this is a huge issue that we have to come to grips with. I have in my life, and I've done it biblically. And what I'm going to try to do is um, either next Sunday, I'll probably do it next Sunday, or I'll do a podcast this week explaining the 
biblical views for whether or not it is proper to resist governmental authority if the law is unjust. A lot of people disagree with that. Um, I don't. Francis Schaeffer didn't. Many other Christians throughout history haven't. Peter and John and the early church didn't. And so we're going to be talking about that either either next Sunday or um, I may send the podcast out this week because we are at a really perilous time in our nation. Why did I bring all this up? Because we need to know the will of God in order to abide forever. So if you have, if you, let me say this the right way. If you've taken the vaccine, I mean, there's no unpardonable sin here. Uh, I'm sorry you did, but if you did, that's fine. But um, if you come to a conclusion that maybe I made a mistake in doing that, you know, you're going to be required to get boosters every six months. Uh, Israel, uh, Israel right now has put on a, um, requirements for everybody coming to their nation for sightseeing that you have to either have had the vaccine or you have to have uh, had a, well, and what they say is you have to have had the vaccine within the last six months or a booster within the last four in order to even be able to fly into their nation to be able to visit the Holy Land. And it's only getting worse Don't want to digress. Edmund Burke once said that the only thing necessary for evil to flourish, do you remember the rest of that? Is for good men to do nothing. To do nothing. So let let me pray.